Uh, we are beginning a new teaching series this weekend that we're just calling The Grace of Forgiveness. And actually, this series was first planned last February as we looked on what focuses we would have in this year that we're walking through. Because as we looked at that and prayed about it, we just had a collective sense that one of the sticking points, one of the obstacles that many people get stuck on in their personal lives and therefore their spiritual lives is an inability uh, either to receive forgiveness or to offer forgiveness. You know what I mean? I mean, for many people, we can get stuck spiritually because either we, we can't fully receive forgiveness or because we aren't willing to extend to forgiveness to somebody we need to forgive. And believe me in this, I understand that forgiving someone who has wounded you Someone whose arrows have pierced you, that can be a deeply difficult step to take. So we want to talk about this together and, and, and see how God's word guides us in understanding this grace of forgiveness. And there are going to be three weeks in this series we'll walk through. And so in it, we're going to look at how we extend forgiveness to others. And then specifically, we're going to look at how we extend forgiveness within families, which can often be the place where some of the deepest wounds are experienced. But this week, that I thought it would be helpful if we kind of first laid a foundation just of what authentic forgiveness looks like. To put it another way, I mean, b before we look at how we extend forgiveness to others, I want to look at receiving forgiveness ourselves. Because at times, it, it can be that we might struggle with forgiving others because we haven't truly experienced forgiveness ourselves. So to guide us in this, we're going to turn together to the book of the Psalms. If you want to turn there with me, if you have your Bible or Bible app with you, it's right in the middle of your physical Bible if you have that. And turn to Psalm chapter 32, if you would. That's going to be our focus together today, Psalm chapter 32. And there's a kind of an intriguing thing at the start of this psalm. If you look right at the beginning of Psalm 32, even before verse 1, you'll see a phrase, a masculine of David. That's what it's called. Now, a masculine was a kind of an ancient Hebrew literary and mus musical term that literally meant something like enlightenment. That's what it means. So it really, that title indicates that what's to follow is of particular importance. It, it needs to be taught. It needs to be reflected on. And understand this. There are only six masculines of David in the entire book of the Psalms. In other words, this is often referred to, Psalm 32, as a didactic, a preaching psalm that's been given to us so we can learn from the enlightenment that David received from God, so that we can learn something essential. That's what it's telling us. Something essential for this life is reflected here. And I want us to really hear this psalm in its entirety, all right? So we're going to read through it. And as we read, you're going to notice something. We're going to come three times to another Hebrew word, the Hebrew word selah. Now, if you recall, selah simply means something like pause and reflect on what you've just read or what you've just sung. Yet we use it in our worship times as well to just prompt us to reflect on what we've just been singing. So we're going to do that together today. As we read this psalm, I'm just going to pause for a moment, kind of in obedience to David uh, here. And as, when I read the word selah, we'll just pause for us to reflect on what we've just read, all right? So let's lean into this. And remember, friends, this is the word of God. And we read in Psalm 32 these words. A masculine of David. 
Blessed are the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, David writes, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. But finally, I acknowledge my sin to you, Lord, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer your prayer to you at a time when you may be found. I mean, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. And the Lord says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eyes upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed, guided with bit and bridle, or will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. So be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now there are kind of three themes, three elements that are woven through this psalm that I want us to reflect on more deeply to, for us to gain some enlightenment today, all right? We're gonna look at three themes of this beautiful psalm. And just starting with a first theme here is simply this. It speaks of our response to guilt. Our response to guilt. I mean, the year was 1945, and, and World War II had just concluded. The ar armistice had been signed in Europe and in Japan. Hostilities had ceased. But under the leadership of the American General Douglas MacArthur, the al Allies had actually bypassed many islands of the Pacific as they drove towards Japan. So even though the war was over, tens of thousands of Japanese soldiers were, were still occupying these islands, hiding the jungles and mountains of the Pacific. And so the Allied forces went to these islands and declared there, the war is over, peace has been declared, lay down your arms and come out. But you can imagine the Japanese didn't believe them. They thought it was some kind of trick. So MacArthur actually had the emperor of Japan at the time, Emperor Hirohito, make recordings which they then took to these islands and broadcast over loudspeakers with him declaring the war is over, peace has been declared, lay down your arms and come out. And it was only then that these Japanese soldiers began to kind of trickle out. And the last soldier came out in March of 1974, 29 years after the war was over. So they asked this soldier, why'd you keep on hiding? And his response was simply, I was afraid. I mean, if you're at war with a stronger opponent, if you've created some kind of enmity with a more powerful foe, and it is really normal to fear, right? And the thing is, when we fear, a natural response is to hide. 
And as Arthur Jeffries notes, that's the spiritual dynamic that just runs through Psalm 32. That we sinners sin, so we sinners fear, and therefore, we sinners hide. Amen. I mean, what was the first thing that Adam and Eve did after their great sin in the Garden of Eden? I mean, the Lord God, there he, he comes walking the garden. He says, I mean, where are you? Adam replies, we heard your voice, we were afraid, and so we hid. Okay, and then we come to Psalm 32, written by this man named David. Who is David? Well, we know he was a shepherd boy who was favored by God, became one of the most well-known and successful kings in the history of Israel. And David, we know from Scripture, was a good man. In fact, Scripture describes David as a man whose heart was after God's own heart. But as good as David was, he was far from perfect. He knew guilt. I mean, although David was just a great king, he walked with God for much of his life. We also know he committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. And then was part of a murderer of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to try and cover up his adultery. So understand this as we read Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is a masculine, it's an enlightenment, and it's a song that was written after that adultery and murder. And it therefore describes David's own personal experience of coming to, of being led to, of understanding, having enlightenment about guilt and forgiveness. And David tells us here, his first response to his sin and guilt, it was to go into hiding. He tried, in the words of the Psalms here, to cover himself. In other words, he tried to pretend. He tried to live in hypocrisy. Look at verse 3. David wrote, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though through my groaning all day long. I, I kept silent. I did. I pretended. I covered. I hid. But verse 5, finally, though, he says, but then... Then finally I acknowledge my sin to you, Lord. And I did not cover my iniquity. Finally. You know, John Ortberg tells a story from his spiritual mentor, Dallas Willard. I mean, Willard's two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter named Larissa was playing in the backyard, and, and she discovered how to make mud, which she called warm chocolate. You can kind of imagine. And it really didn't take long until she was just covered in mud. And Larissa's grandmother, who is in the backyard reading with her, she had her chair turned away from Larissa. So when she finally turned and saw her granddaughter, she discovered her mess. She cleaned her up, and she said to her, now, Larissa, no more of that. So then wisely, she turned her chair to face Larissa. But pretty soon, as you could guess, this two-and-a-half-year-old went back to this warm chocolate factory. But making eye contact with her grandmother, she said, don't look at me, Nana, okay? <laughs> and Nana, who apparently was a little bit codependent, agreed to that for some reason. Three times, while the little girl was playing in the mud, Larissa said, don't look at me, Nana, okay? And Dallas Willard writes, thus the tender soul of a little child shows us how necessary it is for us that we be unobserved in our wrong. In other words, friends, we hide. 
Jeffrey says, imagine a businessman who checks into a hotel room. The hotel has a policy that states the name of the movie that you rent will not appear on your statement. So he reaches for the remote control and he first fires up a little prayer. Don't look at me, God, okay? Imagine a student taking an exam. The adrenaline is flowing. She studied hard, crammed a bunch of facts in her mind, but it kind of mind is spinning in this. The answers are in there somewhere, but she can't access them. So she really pulls out a cheat sheet. I mean, her soul is kind of bothered by this, but she needs the answers. Lord, don't look at me, okay? I'll be back with you in the morning when I read my Bible. But for now, would you just kind of turn your face away, okay? Ortberg suggests that might be one of the most common prayers we express. Maybe the least acknowledged prayer. Maybe one of the prayers that we may not even be aware of when we speak it. Don't look at me, God, okay? And that's the dynamic of this spiritual life. Sinners sin. So then we sinners hide. You know, the story's told of Noel Coward, that well-known playwright, in kind of a let's-see-what-happens prank. He once sent an identical anonymous letter to 10 notable leaders in London. The note said this, we know what you've done, if you don't want to be exposed, leave town. Within six months, all 10 men that received that letter had moved. <laughs> it was a brutal prank, but it showed, I mean, both the, the awesome power of guilt and our human propensity as sinners to hide. I mean, we try to cover ourselves. And we use different methods, different tools, different tricks, devices to try to kind of cover up to hide our sin. I mean, for David, it was deception. I mean, Bathsheba becomes pregnant from David, and, and so he tries to cover it up. He quickly brings back her husband from the, the battlefront to try to get them to have some intimate time together. That doesn't work, so he goes to another scheme. He starts sending Bathsheba's husband back to the front lines of the battle to make certain he was killed there. David hid through deception. Or, or sometimes we kind of cover up our sins just by trying to ignore it. Just We try to fill our time, our, our minds with just other stuff, work, busyness, whatever. Anything to keep our mind from the guilt. Keep it out of sight, out of mind. Or, or another method we use to cover our sin is justification. And I think, safely, I can say we use that one a lot, right? I mean, we justify ourselves. Okay, okay, I, I shouldn't have done that. But really, that other person, they forced my hand. Or... My kids made me, or my, my coworkers made me, or my, if my spouse wasn't so hard-hearted and did a better job of meeting my needs, then this all wouldn't have happened. But think about this. What does that do to our sin and guilt? It doesn't take it away, because we sinners sin, and then we sinners tend to hide. Which leads to a second theme in the psalm. We just call it the purpose and weight of guilt. You know, we ask the question, you know, what does cause this guilt? Well, did you notice in the first two verses of the psalm that the primary reason for guilt is disobedience towards God? And, and our God has given us this ability to recognize, to discern right from wrong. I mean, understand, God has created within each of one of us what, what's called a conscience it, and an emotional mechanism that causes us to feel remorse for wrongful behavior. 
So understand, you could say guilt really is kind of like an, a divine implant. It, it's a graciously designed tool to bring we sinners, prompt we sinners back to God. But scripture also tells us that it's possible. I mean, through continued defiance of God and sin, to become hardened to that guilt. So we no longer feel it. We no longer feel guilty, even when we should. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul speaks of in 1 Timothy 4. He speaks of individuals who have had their consciences seared as with a hot iron. So friends, we're warned to be sensitive to what God has given us because we can get into the point through a repeated sin that we just no longer start feeling guilty because your conscience has been seared. And I can tell you, I have walked with enough friends who have dabbled in a pattern of sin long enough, eventually they just become numb to the sin. What they would have viewed as abhorrent not long before, they start thinking, this really isn't so bad. So if we've sinned and not repented, if we haven't turned away from our sin, then, then we should feel guilt. In, in fact, I'd go so far to say, we really should be thankful for guilt in that way. Because it, it's kind of like a warning light on a hot stove. Guilt can keep you from getting burned. But in addition to that purpose, that's why scripture also teaches that there's therefore kind of a weight to authentic guilt. I mean, just as David describes here, I mean, when we try to cover our sins, he says, it's like God's hand feels heavy upon us. Ever felt that? I mean, when we try to mask our sin, it's, it's like we groan, we, we fade. Look at how he says it in verse three there. For when I kept silent, it was like my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, Lord. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Selah. Yeah, <laughs> reflect on that a bit. <laughs> David's saying, it, it's like the liquid had been drained out of me. It was like I was sucked dry. I, I might be looking fine. I feel like a prune. I mean, I have no strength. I'm, I'm fading away. And, and David's words remind us here that when we don't fully confess and repent, we actually can experience emotional, physical distress. I mean, anger, bitterness, those can come as a result of unconfessed sin. I mean, ulcers, high blood pressure, migraine headaches, lower back pain, that can come from concealing our sins. Let me be really clear, though. That's not always the cause of those, all right? Don't be afraid to rub your back this morning. Not by any means. But it can be a cause. Because David here, he's describing a physiological response our bodies can have to a troubled conscience. Because our mind spins, our stomach churns, we, we groan, we fade. And so we ask the question, isn't there a better alternative? <laughs> I mean, is this the way we want to live our lives? Dr. Carl Menninger, a famed psychiatrist, he once said, if I could convince, if I could convince the patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, 75% of them could walk out the next day. And in Psalm 32... David doesn't want us to miss a correlated point, simply this. Only confession and repentance will bring true restoration freedom. And that leads to a, a third theme we see in the psalm. We just call it this, 
the magnitude of forgiveness. Just the magnitude of forgiveness. I mean, because, friends, here's the reality. Here's the options. We can either continually try to cover our own sins, or we can do like what David finally did. What's expressed here in verse 5. David said, I acknowledge my sin to you, Lord. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Amen. You know, it's kind of, something kind of interesting here. Did you notice David provides kind of a threefold description of sin in this verse? Do you notice that? Three words he uses. He refers to sin, and that in the original language means just missing the mark of God's perfection. Then he refers to iniquity. And, and that actually refers to crookedness, kind of a deformity or perversion in our actions. Really, the image it draws out is like a tree that's gnarled and twisted. That's what iniquity speaks of. And then the third word, transgressions. And that refers to just defined obedience towards God, kind of revolting against the Almighty. So understanding this, the point of him using these three different words isn't try to hammer sin on our head in this way, but it's to remind us that Every type of sin and wrongdoing, it doesn't matter the form, can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. I mean, David didn't know yet about Jesus, but we looking back from the New Testament lens can understand that's what's being spoken of here. Because here's the reality, we miss the mark, right? We are inherently crooked. We are, we defiantly disobey. But here's the good word. No matter what we've done, we can be restored. We can be made new, friends. And so the cool thing here is that David also uses a triad of words to express the magnitude of our forgiveness that we now know we find in Jesus Christ. Look at this. David expresses it in verse 1. He says, blessed. That just means happy. Celebrative is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. So here's the good news. That through confession and faith in Jesus, your transgressions, friends, they're forgiven. Your, your sin is covered. Your iniquity, it's not counted against you. Amen. I hope you feel that. <laughs> and, and did you notice that in the last part of verse 2 there? Notice how David says that God does all this for the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now understand this. That doesn't mean the one in, who has no faults in their life. But rather, this refers to those who just readily admit their sin. It, it's speaking of authenticity, of honesty in this. It, it means we're not deceitful in acknowledging our sin. It, it's not a matter of trying to be perfect, but it's really, this is speaking of recognizing we're not perfect because far too many of us are dishonest about our sins. You know, in his book entitled, Not the Way We're Supposed to Be, Dr. Cornelius Plantiga writes this. The awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin. They feared it. They fled from it. They grieved over it. Some of our grandparents agonized over their sins. A man who lost his temper might wonder whether he could still go to Holy Communion. Now, where sin is concerned, people just mumble. <laughs> so can I ask you, do you tend to mumble about your meanderings? 
do you kind of, kind of just excuse your infractions? Do you just kind of let yourself be deceived about your disobedience? Or, truly, are you honest with God? You know, the great theologian, early church father, Augustine, he said that the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. That's the beginning of knowledge, he says. So for him, in order to be reminded of both his own inclination to sinfulness and God's gracious forgiveness, Augustine actually had this psalm, Psalm 32, engraved on his bedroom wall as he lay dying in his bed so that he could read it daily. And then when he was too sick to read it, he could therefore have somebody come in and recite these wonderful words to him. And then there's David. David was the one who had been enlightened about forgiveness because he experienced it, because he recognized he was a sinner. And again, think about this, the reality of who wrote this. David was chosen by God to be king of Israel, king of God's people. He was one who was loved by God, protected by God. Even when King Saul was trying to kill David, the God of creation protected David. David is rightly viewed as one of the heroes of Scripture. And what did David do? He commits adultery. Then he lies about it. Then, then trying to cover up his sin, he has his mistress's husband killed. So understand this. When David writes in Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, he's talking about himself. He's talking what he's experienced. Because David knew what it was like. He understood what it meant to have God's gracious forgiveness just wash over him, cleanse him, give him new life. And here's the wonder of this. You don't have to beg God to forgive you. Because understand, God wants to forgive you more than you want to be forgiven. You don't need to bargain with God about this. You don't have to try to bribe him by saying you'll do certain good things if he forgives you. You don't have to do penance for the stuff and mess in your past. So, so you ask, okay, okay. Well, what do you do if you have confessed your sins? If you've repented, if you turn from them, and yet you still feel oppressed by guilt. And I want to be clear on this. Something's wrong in that. Understand, that guilt, it's not from God. God never intended for you to live with the weight of guilt upon you after you've confessed and repented. In fact, to that end, David lists in Psalm 32 four promises of God in this song to make sure we see this reality. I want, let's look at them briefly here. We've already seen the first one, that God promises to wash away your sin and guilt. Look at verse 5. David writes, you forgave the iniquity, you forgave the guilt of my sin. And, and, and just don't miss this, friends. God doesn't just promise to forgive your sin. He promises to erase your guilt, that you would be holy in Jesus. Secondly, God promises you his protection. Look at verse 7. David writes, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. God wants to be your shelter in your life. He truly wants what's best for you. Then also, God thirdly promises his guidance to you. Look at verse 8. The Lord says, I'll instruct you. I'll teach you in the way you should go. I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. And really, I think the question here is, are you allowing God to instruct and teach you? Truly. 
I mean, interesting what that verse 8 is followed up with in verse 9, because David writes this, don't be like a horse or mule without understanding, which can't be curbed, can't be guided without a bit and bridle. I mean, allow God to guide you. Allow him to guide you through his word, through those around you who are seeking to follow Jesus, because he promised he'll do it if you let him. And then fourthly, see this, God promises to enclose you in his unfailing love. Look at verse 10. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And I, I just, please hear this. No matter how evil the deed, no matter how base the transgression, no matter how seriously you hurt another, God's forgiveness will wash over you. His love will surround you if you call out to him and trust in him. Author Brendan Manning put it this way, listen. If Jesus would appear at your dining table tonight with knowledge of everything you are and are not, total comprehension of your life story and every skeleton hidden in your closet, if he laid out the real state of your present discipleship with your hidden agendas, mixed motives, and the dark desires buried inside your psyche, you would know his acceptance, love, and forgiveness. Because that's our God. That's the magnitude of his forgiveness. Friends, if, if you're at war with a more powerful opponent, if you've created enmity, then you kind of naturally want to fear and hide. But think of this. What if the war is over? What if God has brought peace through Jesus' shed blood on the cross? What if God truly desires to make a wretch his treasure? We can come out of hiding. We can walk in the light like he's in the light. We can receive the peace of God. Because here's the wonder of this. Understand this, that the way for God to glorify his name and bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven is not just by forgiving our sins and removing our guilt, but it's also by transforming sinners. That's what God wants to do. God not only covers our sin, Scripture says, but he makes us into new people in Jesus Christ. Look what Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Listen, therefore, if any was in Christ, he or she is a new creation. It's like the oldest passed away. Behold, the new has come. Amen? So can I ask you today, perhaps for the first time, are, are you ready right now to have your sins forgiven? I mean, to, for your life, for your eternity, be changed forever. If so, I, I just want to invite you to, to just pray a prayer to God, a, a prayer of salvation to him. And, and we can do it this way. I'll just say a phrase, and if, if this expresses your heart, you can just repeat in silence, praying to God as I prompt us through it. So can we do this? Will you bow your heads with me? And again, if your desire today is to know and experience the wonder of God's forgiveness, love, and grace, just in silence, repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I need you. For too long, I've kept you out of my life. I confess I'm a sinner and cannot save myself. So by faith, I receive your gift of new life in Jesus. I invite you into my life, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior. 
I believe you died and rose again so I might have life. So please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to love and trust you. And I thank you, Lord. Amen. Can I ask you, if you, if you prayed that prayer, can I encourage you to let someone know? Maybe a friend with you here today or one of our pastors, me. Because we want to support you as you walk in this incredible life in Jesus. And maybe for many of you here, your faith is already in him. And it's, you want to drink in this reminder of what you received in Jesus, the magnitude of God's forgiveness for you. So let me close in prayer together as we speak to our king. Will you pray with me? So, Father, we come with thanksgiving, just thanking you for the enlightenment you gave David, praying you would enlighten us similarly with the wonder of your love, of your goodness, of your forgiveness. And, Father, we do pray that even as we continue in this teaching series, this would be a foundation for us, not just mentally but spiritually, that we'd be rooted, rested in the wonder, the reality of your grace, your goodness in Jesus Christ. And pray that even as we go from here through this week that you'd remind us of what we received and we would live out of that reality and hope. And for that, we give you thanksgiving, our gracious God. And again, all God's people say, amen. Amen.